Father, we pray for those who are away from us today. We ask that you would be with them. We ask that those who are sick, we know there's a lot of uh, COVID-19 going around again. We thank you that uh, so far no one that we know is uh, in, in this round of things has been uh, very sick, but Lord, we do pray for healing and for strength, uh, recovery from fatigue, Lord, and, and that we will gather together again. Lord, we pray for those who are traveling, and we ask that you would keep them safe and bring them back together to us as well. Lord, we know that you know our, our lives and our hearts. You know the ins and outs of, of what we're thinking and feeling and fearing and uh, what we're worried about, what we're anxious about. Lord, we, we, we thank you that you invite us to cast our cares on you because you care for us. And again, what an amazing thing it is that the God of the universe cares for us. Lord, we, we do that now. We cast our anxieties and our cares and our worries and our fears all on you. And we rest in your goodness, Lord. We rest our hearts in who you are this morning. And we thank you for your precious promises to us, Lord, that uh, nothing can shake and nothing can change. We thank you for covering our lives with your grace and, and the truth that uh, wherever we go, whatever happens to us, Lord, that, that we will remain under your grace because of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, now as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We believe that your Spirit is here and with us and that the word is the sword of your Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would wield this sword in our hearts and, and that you would uh, bring about a renewed repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd be pleased to bear fruit in us. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to uh, let your word have a transforming effect on our lives and on our church so that individually and collectively we uh, are conformed to a greater degree to the image of our Savior Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. I want to ask you this morning as we begin, have you ever been guilty of overstating something? Really, we, we do it all the time. Uh, a couple of years ago, Candace and I were at her sister's wedding and uh, we, you guys know us, uh, we like coffee. There was no coffee, we wanted some coffee. And so uh, we somehow made that desire known. We weren't asking anyone to get us coffee, but one of her sister's friends who was there said, I, I can get you a coffee. And we said, are you sure? And he said, I've never been more sure of anything in my entire life. <laughs> and his newlywed spouse was with him there and just like, really? Like, Never been more sure of anything in your entire life? It's a great example of overstatement, right? We watch sports and, and we immediately say that was the greatest athletic achievement known to man. We turn on the news and we hear the reporter, today's events were the most consequential in the history of the nation. Or try a new restaurant in town and we post on social media, there has never been and never will be a sandwich as delicious as the one I just ate. We are constantly overstating things. Well, here's something that we cannot overstate. It would be impossible to overstate the significance of the life of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And really, no matter what worldview someone is coming from, it's undeniable that this singular life has shaped the entire course of history. I mean, we keep track of time itself, B.C. and A.D., based on his life. There was time before Christ, and then there was Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, and the time since his life. It would be impossible to overstate the seismic significance of Jesus' place in the history of the world. 
And it seems worthwhile then, in light of his crucial importance to history, that we should ask the question, who was Jesus of Nazareth? And in fact, this is a question that Jesus himself asked his disciples to answer. And it's a question that the Bible calls us to answer today. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You can open your Bibles to Matthew 16. We're continuing our series through Matthew, following the fulfillment. And after many months now of working our way through this book, this morning we've come to really the crux of the narrative. Our passage today is is kind of the hinge of the Gospel of Matthew. On the one hand, it's the culmination of everything that we have seen so far in the life and ministry of Jesus. And on the other hand, it's the introduction of all that's still to come in the last 12 chapters of this book. Today we have reached the hinge of the book. Our text is Matthew 16, and we're only going to look at verses 13 through 17, but we're going to read through verse 21, which really gives us that the whole sense of where this book turns. And so we're going to read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We're going to be spending a few weeks in these verses and today we're looking at verses 13 through 17 and again asking the question, who is Jesus? And there isn't a more important question we could ever answer Who is Jesus? Now in our passage today, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the consensus of the people, the confession of Peter, and the commendation of Jesus. The consensus of the people, the confession of Peter, and the commendation of Jesus. And so let's begin looking at this text, starting with the consensus of the people in verses 13 and 14. The consensus of the people. Now, where our text picks up in Matthew, the disciples have withdrawn once again with Jesus from predominantly Israelite territory. There has been rising opposition from the Jewish leaders against Jesus. And so Jesus has led the disciples into a Gentile town called Caesarea Philippi. They're doing this simply to get away from the heat of opposition that is currently in Israel. And so from Caesarea Philippi, in verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples this question. Jesus knew that the time had come to draw out of the disciples their conclusions about who he is. So he begins this way. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He often used the title Son of Man to refer to himself. And the disciples understood the question. They understood he was asking them, who do people think I am? After all I've taught and all I've done, what is the people's conclusion about me? 
Well, the disciples answer him in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, apparently the people had a variety of thoughts about who Jesus was. We saw back in chapter 14 that Herod is the one who concluded that Jesus was John the Baptist. Herod had killed John the Baptist, and he was guilty about that. And, and, and when he saw Jesus doing his miracles, his conclusion was this is, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. And so at least some people took this view. Now there are others who said Jesus was Elijah, which would have been in accord with the promise that God made in Malachi to send Elijah before the day of the Lord. So, so there are some people who thought this is the Elijah figure who comes before the final day of the Lord. There are others who said this is Jeremiah or another prophet, and, and, and they tried to correlate Jesus with some past prophet or, or pro promise of a prophet. And as you can tell, speculation was all over the place in Israel. On the one hand, this shows there really wasn't much of a consensus at all among the people. Who did the people think Jesus was? Well, they thought a lot of different things about who Jesus was. But if we pay attention, there is a common thread, isn't there? Whoever Jesus was, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or someone else, the consensus among the people was this. Jesus was a prophet. He was a prophet. He was a man sent from God who taught with the authority of God and who validated his teaching with mighty works from God. He was a prophet. Know exactly what kind of prophet he was, how he related to past prophets or promises of prophets. These things were debated, but the consensus of the people at this time was that Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet of God. And if we fast forward 2,000 years, not much has really changed. Of course, there are a wide variety of opinions in our world about who Jesus was, but if we look for a common thread, most people today would say what the people were saying back then, that at some level, Jesus was a prophet. He was a good teacher. He was a man who made known the will of God. He, he taught good truth from God. This, this is, by and large, the consensus of people today all over the world. One example of this I've seen recently is in reading people's social media comments on the moral issues that divide our nation. It's interesting, because though followers of Jesus are often condemned as hateful and bigoted for standing on biblical convictions, what you hardly see ever is anyone arguing against Jesus. In fact, many of these conversations, because we should call them argument threads, right? They're not conversations. Many of these, though people reject the biblical teaching, they, they, they try to say things like this. Well, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, there's, there's still this even though they're rejecting his followers who are following his teaching, there's, there's still this desire and this, and this understanding that, well, Jesus himself was okay. I mean, he, he, had, he had true teaching. He was a good teacher. He, was a, he, he taught us to love. He, you see, even those who reject his people have a tacit acknowledgement that his message was good and true and, in some sense, prophetic. But here's the thing about calling someone a prophet. True prophets speak true words. And what this means is this. If, if you're going to accept the premise that Jesus is a prophet, then you need to accept the words that Jesus actually taught. And here's the problem then for those who claim that Jesus was just a prophet. We, when we begin to look at Jesus' teaching in the gospel accounts, it doesn't take long to realize that Jesus viewed himself as much more than a prophet. 
Think about some of these statements from Jesus' own lips. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said this, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. No prophet would ever say, I've come to fulfill the prophets. See, Jesus viewed himself not as another prophet, but as the fulfillment of the prophets. In Matthew 12, 6-8, Jesus said this, And I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. A prophet's job was to point people back to the institutions that God had established for his people. But Jesus comes and he says, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. He claimed himself to be greater than these institutions that prophets pointed people to. In John 8, 58, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. I mean, Jesus taught that he existed before the patriarch Abraham thousands of years before. He, 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 was, he was in existence then. John eleven twenty five. I'm the resurrection and the life. He claimed to have the power within himself to give eternal life to whoever believed in him. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What prophet ever said, I am the way? I am the truth. No, God's truth is what prophets point to. Jesus said, I'm the truth. He taught that he was the exclusive means of reconciliation with God. Well, again, if Jesus was a prophet, then his teaching must be true. But in his teaching, he clearly claimed to be more than a prophet. He claimed to be the divine fulfillment of the prophets. The 20th century author and apologist C.S. Lewis stated this better than anybody. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says, I'm a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. The consensus then and the consensus now that Jesus was a mere prophet must be rejected. Again, as Lewis said, Jesus has not left that open to us. But if Jesus was not a mere prophet, then who was he? Who is he? This leads to the next section of the passage, the confession of Peter. The confession of Peter. Jesus asked the question again, but this time he makes it personal. Look in verse 15. He said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am. Just notice that word but to start the sentence. That's what we call today a leading question, right? Jesus expects the disciples' answer to be different than the people's answer. Who do they say, but who do you say that I am? He implies that the consensus of the people is not correct, and he asks the disciples essentially, but you know who I really am, right? And if you've been following along in Matthew so far, who else would you expect to speak up on behalf of the disciples but Peter? Whether he was the unofficially elected spokesperson of the disciples or he just loved to hear his own voice, Peter's the one that speaks up and he answers the question in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew referred to Jesus as Jesus Christ. We're used to hearing Jesus Christ, but, but Matthew is writing from a vantage point as an author looking back on the events. We are looking back on the events. It's here in Peter's confession for the first time that someone actually calls Jesus of Nazareth the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a watershed moment in the Gospel of Matthew an unbridled confession that Jesus is the Christ. Let's think about his answer a little more deeply. He uses two titles to answer Jesus' question, the Christ and the Son of the living God. So so what did Peter mean by these titles? What was Peter thinking when he confessed these things? Well, first he confessed Jesus is the Christ. Now, again, we're used to hearing Christ attached to Jesus' name. What does it actually mean? Well, the term means anointed one. Christ means anointed one, and it refers back to Israelite kings who were anointed when their reign began. And in the Old Testament story, when Israel had sinned and continued to sin, and finally God sent them into exile, God also gave them a promise that he would send a savior king, a a, a new son of David, an anointed one who would save them from their sins and restore them. God God made that promise to his people. I'm going to send you a savior king to save you and restore you. This Savior came, this anointed one, became known by the time of the New Testament as the Messiah or the Christ. It was an all-encompassing term to capture all of God's promises to to his people. that He's going to send someone to make everything right. He's going to send a king who's going to save them. When you think Christ, think Savior King. That's what Christ means, Savior King. And Peter's confessing, Jesus, that's who you are. You're the Savior King that, you, that God promised to send to us and to save us. There's something important to understand here. If you're going to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus? If you're really asking that question, well, you can't answer it unless you understand the Old Testament promises. There's no way to know who Jesus is apart from all the Old Testament scriptures. And that's why Matthew's writing to show he's the fulfillment, the fulfillment of what? Of all that came before, of the entire Old Testament, the whole story of all of God's promises, and it's all wrapped up in that word Christ. You're the fulfillment of all of God's promises to save us. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior King. Next, Peter adds to the Christ the title, the Son of the Living God. The Son of the Living God. And just notice As an aside, he says the living God, because there's only one God. There's not multiple gods. Any other supposed God is not alive. He he does not exist. There is one true God, and Peter says you are the son of the one true God. Now it's possible that Peter's really just restating what he just said in confessing Jesus to Christ. In Psalm 2, God addresses the king of Israel, and in Psalm 2, God says to the king of Israel, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. And so in Psalm 2, in the context of Psalm 2, we see that the, the king of Israel represented God in such a way that God could say, you are my son. And it's possible Peter's just making that connection and, and saying, because you are the Christ, that means you are the son of God. You, you, are, you are the representative of God. You've been given that title by God. So he might have just been simply affirming in two different ways that Jesus is the Savior King, the Messiah, But I think there's more going on here. One, because Jesus seems to understand there's more going on in Peter's confession, as we'll see. There's good reason to believe that Peter was beginning to grasp 
that Jesus' sonship was more than just a representative sonship. It wasn't just a title, but in some sense, surely a mysterious sense, it was a reality. Just think of the last few chapters and all that Peter has experienced. He has seen Jesus perform the divine act of creation, of feeding 5,000 and 4,000 people on two different occasions. And then in between, he witnessed Jesus walking on the sea, and he actually walked out on the water with Jesus. And at the end of that scene, remember in Matthew 14, Matthew tells us that the disciples worshipped him. They worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, it's one thing to refer to a king as the son of God if you're just saying that he has the title of representing God in his office, but it's another thing entirely to worship that person, isn't it? The disciples were beginning to understand that Jesus wasn't a mere human king with the designation son of God. They were beginning to understand that in some sense, the son of God had come to be the king of his people. Surely there was still mystery, but his understanding of Jesus continued to develop over time. In the very next chapter of Matthew, in a few weeks, we'll see that Peter would be a witness to Jesus' glorious transfiguration. Jesus' glory would be unveiled, and Peter would hear the voice of God speak from heaven and say, This is my beloved Son. After Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, In Acts 2, Peter would be the one to stand up and preach to the crowds, and he would say, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Not just Christ, both Lord, as in Yahweh, as in God, and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in his final letter, Peter wrote this, that Jesus is our God and Savior. He said he's our God and Savior. This is the same confession that he's making today, just in its fully developed form. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter would come to understand, from whatever kernel of understanding he had here, that this means Jesus is both the Savior King and the true, only begotten, eternal Son of God. Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the answer to the question, who is Jesus? This is who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's not merely a man sent from God. He is the Son of God who came to man. He's the Son of God who added full humanity to himself and who came to be the Savior King of God's people. This is all inherent in Peter's confession. It's explicit in the New Testament. And for this reason, we have creeds like the Nicene Creed, which is an ancient statement of biblical faith. And it teaches this about who Jesus is. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. That's just saying that Jesus is is the same as God in every way. Begotten, not made, not created, but eternally begotten, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. No wonder it's impossible to overstate the significance of the life of Jesus. How could we ever overstate the impact of the Creator entering His creation? How could we overstate the impact of the Son of God taking on human form? The one who existed from eternity past, taking on a mortal human body in time. 
This is the confession of Peter. This is the testimony of Scripture. This is the belief of the church for centuries. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the question comes to each one of us this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you join with the consensus of the world that Jesus was merely a man, merely a prophet, merely a religious figure? Or do you confess with Peter and with all of Jesus' followers throughout the centuries, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? I invite you this morning to acknowledge the true Jesus to confess that he is the Son of God who has come to save us and to commit your life to following him. The consensus of the people was that Jesus was a mere prophet. The confession of Peter was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But now we get to see what Jesus himself thinks. This is the final section of the passage, the commendation of Jesus. The commendation. If Jesus were only a prophet, then his response to Peter's confession It would have been similar to what John the Baptist's response was when Peter, when people asked John the Baptist about his ministry. Here's what John the Baptist said. He said, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. See, see, John knew he wasn't the Christ, and and he said, No, don't get it wrong. I'm, I'm just a prophet. The Christ is coming. So like John, Jesus, if he was just a prophet, he would have pointed beyond himself and he would have said, Peter, I'm flattered, but you're overstating my significance here. But that's not how Jesus responded. He he didn't say, no, that's a little too far. Look at what he says to Peter in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus commends Peter's confession by declaring Peter blessed. He signals his agreement with what Peter has said by telling him, you have received favor from God. And again, this just reinforces what we said earlier. We can't call Jesus a prophet when Jesus viewed himself as more than a prophet. He commends Peter because he himself understood, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus believes that about himself. And he says to Peter, blessed are you. No need to press into that commendation. Why why doesn't Jesus say, correct are you, Simon Barjona? Why doesn't he say, perceptive are you, Simon Barjona? He says, blessed are you. Why does Jesus tell Peter he is blessed in this moment? Well, look at what he says. First, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood is simply a way to describe our humanness, okay, And Jesus is saying to Peter, that confession you just made is not the result of human teaching or human reasoning. He's saying merely human logic could never lead to that confession. Well, we we should ask, why not? Why couldn't human reasoning and human logic lead Peter to the point of saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? I want to say this, it's, it's not because it's an illogical conclusion. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is not illogical. We don't need to go against reason to believe that. In fact, Jesus rebuked the unbelief of the leaders for failing to come to this conclusion. He told them, you should have understood who I am because of my signs. We saw this last week. 
He told the Jewish leaders that you can't interpret the signs, even though you should have. And why not? Why couldn't they understand? It's not because it's illogical. It's not because that it just doesn't make any sense. No, here's why flesh and blood cannot come to this conclusion. It's because of our evil hearts. You see, here, here's how it works. We don't conclude in our own human reasoning that Jesus is, is the Christ because we don't want to conclude that he's the Christ. We don't, we don't want to confess that, and the reason we don't want to confess that is because if we do, the implication is that he has authority over our lives. And as sinful human beings, we don't want to surrender our lives to anyone. We want to maintain our autonomy. We want to maintain control, and so our human reasoning is swayed by our sinful desires so that left to ourselves, we'll never embrace this confession. Left to ourselves, no matter how much sense it makes, we will find another interpretation of all the evidence so that we can cling to our own reign over our own lives. This is why flesh and blood could not reveal this to Peter, not because it's illogical, but because our hearts are bent against it. You see, that, that's, that's the problem of every human being, is our hearts are bent against the truth. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. No matter how much evidence is before us, we will not believe left to ourselves. And yet, Peter did make this confession. How? How did Peter make this confession? Jesus says, because it was revealed to him by my Father who is in heaven. Listen, Peter understood and confessed who Jesus really is because God the Father graciously chose to reveal it to Peter. God chose to make it known to Peter. And what this means is that Peter's confession didn't earn God's blessing. Jesus is not saying, because you've confessed this, now you're blessed. No, he's saying, your confession is the evidence that God has blessed you. The fact that you are confessing that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, means you have been blessed, Peter. You have been blessed. God has revealed this to you. God has blessed Peter with true knowledge of Jesus, a knowledge that he never would have come to any other way. This is the blessedness of Peter, and listen, this is the blessedness of anyone who joins him in his confession. Whoever confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, has been blessed by God with true knowledge of Jesus. And just as it's impossible to overstate the significance of Jesus' life and history, it's impossible to overstate the significance of this gift. It is impossible to overstate the significance that God has revealed to you who Jesus is. This is not just some mediocre blessing we're talking about, not, not just some mundane thing. This is not just set alongside the blessing of a sunny day and some good food. No, this, this blessing is the blessing of all blessings. To be blessed with true knowledge of Christ is to be blessed with salvation itself. It's to be blessed with eternal life. To, to, to know Jesus means that God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and he has delivered you from the judgment that you deserve for your sins. He's delivered you from that to an eternity in his kingdom forever. If God has made Jesus known to you, that's the blessing. That's what he's done for you. He's saved you. This can only happen through true knowledge of Jesus because he's the only savior of the world. There's no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved except the name of Jesus. The Son of God took on humanity so that he could take our place on the cross for our sins. 
He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. He rose again from the dead. He guarantees forgiveness to all who trust in him. And so again, it would be impossible to overstate the significance of God making that known to you, making Jesus known to you. If you confess Peter's confession, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you have been blessed with eternal life. And this is the main idea today. Blessed are all who make Peter's confession their own. Blessed are all who make Peter's confession their own. If Peter's confession is your confession, you have been blessed. Blessed by God with knowledge that you would never come to on your own. Blessed by God with the forgiveness of sins that's in Jesus alone. Blessed by God with eternal life in his kingdom. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and all who truly confess this are truly blessed. As I was preparing to preach these verses this morning, my heart was drawn back to the hymn Amazing Grace, and specifically to the line, was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace, I was blind, but now I see. This passage clarifies for us what that blindness was. And it clarifies for us what it is that we now see because of God's grace. We were blind to who Jesus is. And in that blindness, we remained under judgment. But because of God's amazing grace, because of the undeserved gift of revelation, we now see who Jesus truly is. And in seeing, we have eternal life. And so I know there are no slides for this, but I want to ask you to open back up the slides on your phone that you have. To close today, I want to invite you to join me in singing a few new verses of that old hymn. I pray that this helps our hearts respond together to his amazing grace in unblinding our eyes to the person of Jesus Christ. If you open up those slides, then we can sing this together as a response today to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the reality that if you know that, then God has blessed you because of his grace. And so let's sing these slides together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Was blind to Jesus, Son of God. Mere prophet I perceived until God's grace renewed my heart. Messiah, I believed. The Son of Man is God's own Son, incarnate come to save. He died the death that I deserve. 
then rose up from the grave. Amazing grace that Jesus came and died upon that tree. Amazing grace that I've believed was blind, but now I see. Father, we praise you for your amazing grace to us. We were blind and we could have remained in our blindness and never known that Jesus is the Savior King and your very Son, whom you gave in your love to save us from our sins and to bring us into your kingdom. We praise you, though we have not earned it and don't deserve it, that you have blessed us with a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would continue to grant that knowledge to anyone who has yet to see who Jesus truly is. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.